Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. You know, people keep messing with you so long, right? Pretty soon you just throw your hands up and say, hey, whatever. I've always suspected maybe there were favors, including money changing hands, but I've never been able to prove that. It ends up all being about money. It very rarely ends up being about justice. The main investigation includes over 2,300 subfiles. That is three times larger than the size of the Enron investigation of the early 2000s. This is episode 12 of season one, Occam's Razor. I'm your host, David Payne. People out there who know who we killed will you. Never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no give idea. Up. It could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. And I never thought I'd be here 15 years later. I'm back in my Seattle home office with a new case of writer's block and a sleep deprived mind. It constantly spins like a Rubik's Cube, trying to solve the puzzle. The possibilities seem endless. But every instinct in my body tells me there's something about that helicopter case. The FBI was focused here too, but it's not clear if they had the right person or persons in their sights. And the implications are potentially staggering. To describe the security function there at the FAA in that particular office, what did they do? Well, at that time, there were investigators that inspected internal corruption. They investigated external corruption, and they did airport security. They may have done other things, but those are the three big things they did. This was pre-9-11. We're back in northern Washington, speaking with Mary Rose Diefenderfer, the FAA whistleblower, about the Seattle office of the FAA. The same FAA office that had hired an expert witness who later came under OIG scrutiny for lying about his qualifications. The same FAA office that appeared to be working hand-in-glove with Bell Helicopter Textron to ground 204Bs across the western United States. The same FAA office whose personnel appeared on a suspicious but unauthenticated memo that alleged government payoffs by Bell in connection with their 204 retirement program. And I want to know more about the guys in the security division of that office, the ones who first brought Wales that one odd helicopter case in his files and who asked him to push it forward in federal court. And were these guys like military police in terms of how they acted, their Their, bearing. Their demeanor, yes. They carried guns, and they were very strict, stern guys, guys that you didn't want to mess around with or joke with. So you say they carried guns. Do you know what kind of weapons they carried? Mm Mm-mm, I don't. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with weapons and handguns in general? Yes. Are you familiar with a Colt 380 by any chance? Yes, I am. 
Is that the type of gun you would see them carrying? Well, they kept their guns well hidden, so it's not something that they obviously exposed. Yeah. But I don't remember for sure, but I don't remember the guns being overly big. Something they could hide very easily. One of the things that always bothered me about the FBI's so-called Makarov project was that they apparently knew that their prime suspect had a Makarov before the decade-long search began. According to Bruce McClung, the pilot's friend and mentor, he told the FBI that Steve Jackson had a Makarov within days or weeks of the murder. You see, what was disturbing about this fact was that in contrast to the principles of Occam's razor, it looked like the FBI was going through all sorts of machinations to connect the forensic evidence at the crime scene to the type of gun they knew their suspect had. Remember what firearm expert Aaron Brudenall told us. When they first recovered evidence from the crime scene, they have reported that they recovered bullets with six left, six lands and grooves with a left-handed twist. If you're shooting out of a Makarov handgun, how many lands and grooves and what kind of twist are you going to see if you're firing a 380 caliber ammo through that? A regular Makarov pistol is going to have four lands and grooves and a right-hand twist, which is really common. In the and if a regular Makarov gave you four right markings and the evidence you have gave you six left, the only way those puzzle pieces can possibly fit together is if the gun has been modified. And the only modification that works is retrofitting the gun with one of only 2,600 replacement barrels ever made by a company called Federal Arms. So you've done some testing. You fired a 380 caliber bullet through a Makarov replacement barrel from Federal Arms. Yes, I have. How long a list of possible weapons matched and came within the range of your measurements? Uh, looks like 25 in this particular search. Give me a sense of some of those manufacturers. So I'm going to go from the bottom here. I've got a couple from a company called Unique, a few Smith & Wessons, Davis Industries, Llama, Daewoo. And these are all weapons that have six left. Yeah, they're all six left, and some of them have rifling dimensions within the same range as the, the 380 Makarov combination. I'm looking here, and I'm, I'm finding a, a nice reasonable page of them here. There's a company called Colt. A company called Colt, as in the manufacturer of the Colt 380 ACP, a handgun that was so prevalent in the 1980s and 1990s with U.S. servicemen that it had its own line, the Colt Government Model 380. What does the database show with respect to a Colt 380 versus a Makarov with a replacement barrel? In terms of the measurement between the lands and grooves, how distinct is that? We're talking, you know, thousandths of an inch. And there's some variability in that, too, because these are measurements, you know, made by human examiners. And there's going to be slight differences from measurement to measurement. It sounds a little bit like an art, not a science, when you get down to the very finest points of these comparisons. We have to realize in any measurement, it doesn't matter what it is, there's going to be what we call a variance. And I guess the three possibilities here we could consider would be if you had a Colt 380 pistol, a Makarov with a 380 replacement barrel, and then a Makarov with a 9x18 Makarov replacement barrel. And here I want to pause and reiterate what we say at the top of every episode. 
that the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions not facts, and the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Because we don't know, and will never know, who might have owned a Colt 380 ACP in October of 2001. But what we do know now, thanks to that mysterious package in our mailbox, is that when Tom Wales shut down that helicopter case he was prosecuting just three months before he was killed, he also shut off the money spigot for expert witness fees. Well, it's funny you should mention money, David, because the government paid Fred Wilkin in excess of half a million dollars for his services as an expert witness. Right. And so here he is. He's This yeah. guy's testifying in trial. He's supporting both Bell Helicopters and the government in these claims that you can't retrofit 204Bs. The other side calls foul. They say, who is this guy, Fred Wilkin? How is he an expert witness? He claims he's a DAR, which gets you expert status. But he doesn't have the credentials to do the job he's in. He doesn't have the credentials. And the question then becomes, why? Right. The investigation into expert Fred Wilkin and his role in these 204B helicopter cases would take place in the second half of the year 2000 and culminate in an interim report that has remained hidden to this day. The report was sealed in the pilot's malicious prosecution case against Tom Wales. And while the circumstances of what happened after it was prepared are still murky, the principal conclusions of the report are quite clear. A man named Frederick Wilkin had been pushed forward, certified, and recertified as a DAR, a designated airworthiness representative, by certain FAA officials and Bell Helicopter Textron, even though he didn't have the proper qualifications. Here are some of the critical excerpts from the OIG report. Investigation determined that despite Wilkins' extensive knowledge of helicopters, his background and experience were not sufficient or appropriate for him to have been appointed a DAR, nor did he have a principal place of business in Seattle, as he had claimed in his application. The above abnormalities, as well as the phenomenally rapid time frame within which Wilkins' DAR was issued, led several interviewees to conclude that Wilkin was made a DAR solely to boost his credentials as an expert witness for the FAA in cases involving fraudulent Bell helicopters. And these interviewees were both unanimous in their concerns, as well as where responsibility should lie. At the feet of two FAA Seattle investigators, Bill Reichardt and Ken Zimer, who is sometimes referred to as Zimer. Air Safety Inspector Charles Reynolds, who eventually took over supervising Wilkins' DAR certificate, believed the amount of authority granted Wilkin was unjustifiable. Reynolds believed Reichardt and Zemer had been interested in making Wilkin a DAR so that he could be used as a tool in the investigation of suspected unapproved helicopters. And FAA attorney Peter Leyland's observations were even more condemnatory. Leyland believed Wilkin was appointed a DAR in part because, quote, there were DARs in other FAA regions who had opinions regarding the legitimacy of Bell 204s that were contrary to what the Seattle FISDO believed. For their part, Bill Reichert and Ken Zimer seemed to have amnesia 
when questioned about their roles in Wilkins' appointment. Reichert explained that he was extremely busy with the FISDO's case against Powell at the time Wilkin was appointed to be a DAR. Therefore, Reichert could not recall the extent of his involvement with Wilkins' appointment. And while the OIG inspector's report would try to maintain a certain black-and-white impartiality to its findings, our FAA whistleblower would help provide the color. My impression was... They are so full of it because it's our jobs to remember that stuff and everyone is unique. So to say that they can't remember, especially something so close and only one person, it's not true. It's just absolutely not true. Well, you know, the other thing is Reichert and Zemer and some of these other folks, they were going to have to testify. So they would have to remember this stuff. So they're lying. They remember just fine. Whether Mary Rose was right about that was anyone's guess, but it was the reaction of the big boss of the Seattle field office and Northwest region, Brad Pearson, that would set off the most alarms for me. Pearson first expressed his displeasure at his guy's inability to remember anything, but then he openly, quote, surmised to investigators. The person who really wanted Wilkin to be qualified as a DAR was actually an attorney an attorney who was working with the FAA on the Intrex case, an attorney who was known for his principles, an attorney named Tom Wales. Okay, the, at the top, it talks about Brad Pearson saying he considers this is a completely inappropriate reason to make somebody a DAR. And I said, of course he's saying this because he's covered, this is a cover-his-ass tactic. Pearson didn't want, any, didn't want to know anything. And this is very typical of Pearson. He never put his name on anything, and he never wanted to know anything, even though he knew everything. So nobody could point to him. He always had a fall guy. And that was, this is just typical of Brad Pearson, a cover-your-butt tactic. And Brad Pearson would appear to be pretty good at that. Because what happened after this preliminary OIG report was dropped in December of 2000, six months before Wales dismissed the cases against the pilot and his partner, remains unclear to this day. But it was another document that was dropped on us that left us with even more questions. A document that has also been buried for 20 years and which raised troubling payments of a different sort. A document known as the Petty Memo. So let's talk about the memo. Yeah. So I received this document, what appears to be a facsimile message memo, a top sheet, and at the header it says... Bell Helicopter Text Run. In bold letters across the top of it, it says not authorized for processing classified information. When we first received this mysterious document last year, we were skeptical about its contents as well as its authenticity. Helen Petty is the author of the memo, and she was a contracts administrator at Bell Textron, and it is addressed to the attention of Jim Burt. Who's Jim Burt? Jim Burt is their chief legal counsel. And Helen writes, Jim, payment has been made to the following people per your instructions for assistance in the 204 retirement program. And she goes on to list roughly 17 people, including Tom Wales. And I just want to point out that his name is spelled W-H-A-L-E-S. And who are these other people on the list? 
looks like there are a number of folks who names are familiar to us that were involved in this particular helicopter case, and they are FAA officials. So there's probably close to 10 names on here that either worked specifically on this particular helicopter case, Powell and helicopter, and there also is another DOJ official on here. You might recall that we went down to Texas to track down the alleged recipient of this memo, a lawyer named Jim Burt, who served as Bell Helicopter Textron's chief counsel for product integrity. Burt confirmed that he was Bell's lead in the company's efforts to shut down fraudulent 204Bs, and he made a facially compelling case that it was for real safety and liability issues. On the other hand, he denied knowing a certain contracts administrator at Bell. We are producers. We're doing a podcast, and we're trying to put some pieces together on what was going on in the late 90s with these lawsuits and Bell Helicopter. Does the name Helen Petty mean anything to you? I will confess that it doesn't, really. Do you think you might have a couple minutes? And as far as confessions go, that one was a little odd. Because, well... 817-372. Hello, I'm trying to reach Helen Petty. This is David Payne. How are you? Good. I just want to make sure before I waste any of your time that I have the right Helen Petty. Did you work for Bell Helicopter Textron back in the day, back in Texas? Uh, well, we got the right Helen. Well, so nice to meet you. By way of background, I'm a producer. And while this call would begin with the customary pleasantries, the second I explained why I was calling, the winds abruptly changed. I'm an attorney and a producer on a podcast series that's called Somebody Somewhere. We've been working on a story for over a year now about a case up here in Seattle. And that sudden end to my sentence wasn't an edit. That was me taking an earful from a now very upset Helen Petty at the mention of the word Seattle. So just got off the phone with... Helen Petty, the infamous Helen Petty. You found her. I did find her. Said she had lived at the same place forever. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we shared with her what we were doing, her tone changed and she said she wasn't interested in speaking with us and that they had settled it long ago and that she advised us to speak with the attorneys at Bell Helicopter. Yeah, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? I would have expected her, if this had come up 20 years ago, as it obviously had, as she said, to tell us a little bit about, hey, that was fake, or I had nothing to do with it, or... It wasn't that tone, and she got real stern and said, we dealt with that long ago. And by dealt with... Miss Petty was probably alluding to something that happened in October of 1999, two years before Tom Whale's murder. Something that we, and apparently no one else investigating this case, had any idea about until I started rummaging around the files a few weeks ago. A fight in a random insurance case in the Eastern District of California. A fight over a document that could provide a motive for Tom Whale's murder. A fight about the authenticity of the Petty Memo. Mike, I'm thinking that 
if you took that to the judge, there might be even a transcript about it. Yeah, we no, we we did, we did take it to the judge. Yeah, I will. Uh, We've tracked down yet another lawyer, and we're hoping he has either a good memory or an organized filing system. So there should be a pleading or a transcript or some record of that exchange. Yes. We would love to get our hands on it. My mind is turning because at that time, we only have just Word documents. But I will look for anything in the record about trying to depose Petty. Mike Danko is an experienced plaintiff's lawyer with a specialty in aviation law. And he once represented our California firefighting couple in an insurance claim for their 204B helicopter. I found his name on a 20-year-old document buried deep in the couple's files, who for the purpose of this interview were referred to as the Smiths. And I've asked him to read it. I'm going to share with you my screen. Okay. So you can see the document I'm talking about, which is this July 14th, 1999 memo from the Smiths to you and Eugene Marquette. Yes. And why don't you read that for me? We received the attached anonymously. We don't know if it's real or if someone made it up. We don't even know if there really is or if there ever was a Helen R. Petty at Bell. Anyway, you guys can ponder it. So I look at it and then... The next when Danko received the infamous Petty memo in July of 1999, he was representing the Smiths in their lawsuit against an insurance carrier following its refusal to pay for damage from an improperly installed engine. It's pretty darn complicated because the Smiths had an engine put in the helicopter that was slightly more powerful. Yes. By an outfit called McTurbin, I think it was. McTurbin Lycoming, I think. Oh, nice job. Yes, McTurbin Lycoming. And there was a problem with that engine. So the question then raised by the insurance carrier is, well, this isn't a 204B. We're not inclined to pay on this claim. So, and they're getting their information from Bell, and Bell's telling the insurance carrier, apparently this is not a 204B, and the insurance carrier is... And while this insurance claim would be wholly unrelated to either the Smith's contract dispute with the Forest Service in California and the Tom Wales safety of flight prosecution of the pilot in Seattle, the coordinated actions of Bell Helicopter Textron and the federal government in all these cases would be stunning. And so right at the beginning, the whole thing was kind of odd. So I couldn't understand why everybody was so riled up about the Smiths and their helicopter. And by everybody, who would that be? There was a gentleman by the name of Lance Lerman, who was representing the Forest Service in that case. I mean, Lerman was, you know, rabid. And then Bell Helicopters was completely over the top rabid with regard to the helicopter. And that was weird as well, because they had this guy, Jim Burt, was their in-house counsel. Right. There's a series of correspondence directly between Burt and the Forest Service talking about the Smith's helicopter. Right. And then he was involved in basically what appeared to me to be a campaign to try to ground the 204Bs. And what he did in particular is he went behind, there's no question about this, he went behind the Smiths' back, he talked to the U.S. Forest Service and told them that the Smiths' helicopter had been lost in Laos. And 
that was just wrong. And he later even admitted it was wrong. So there's no question about that. So those were right off the bat, a couple of the weird things that I kind of felt or saw. Then things got kind of even stranger. And that involved Fred Wilkin. And I, I know you said the same Fred Wilkin, whose qualifications had been questioned in the OIG report we received in the mail. And guess who got to ask him questions under oath? So I started looking at the expert's qualifications and I said, you know, this guy's qualifications are fantastic and they just look too good. It was like somebody, I don't know, saying, you know, I played for the Giants. I was their left fielder for a while. And then, oh, yeah, I also played for the Seahawks, you know, and before that I was brain surgeon and I'm 23. So it didn't make sense to me. So I started poking around a little bit and I saw that he had his A&P and he got his DAR right after that. So it's like, well, he just, you know, he's like he got his high school diploma and his PhD within three weeks of each other. So I said, this doesn't, this isn't right. So I knew that he was a fraud. And then his testimony. It would be another year and a half before the Office of Inspector General would reach the same conclusion about Mr. Wilkins' qualifications in its investigation. Of course, that didn't stop Mr. Wilkin from raking in big money in the interim. I have to tell you, the whole thing with Wilkin in particular, I've seen, I just dealt with a lot of paid experts through the years. And this guy was just over the top. I've just never seen anything like it. And now just seeing that he just paid 500 grand, 500 grand, there's no case that's worth 500, paying 500 grand to an expert, let alone, you know, a... There's no backup for any of these approved invoices. It's so sketchy. I'll show you some of the invoices. Okay. They kind of all look like this. Nobody, nobody is going to pay that bill. Well, apparently somebody did pay the bill. There's a line item on here that is a $50,000 expenditure that says miscellaneous other. And this was approved. Holy crap. Oh, man. Here look go. at look the at bottom. Look at the bottom here. Other expenses, 50600 paid in 1997. Other expenses. How, how can that... What can that possibly, there's no way, honest to gosh, I mean. How does that get paid? You can't get any more vague than that. And this isn't chump change, this is 50 Gs. Well, the other thing is, it's, it's 50 Gs with $600 tacked on, so it doesn't look like just 50 Gs. <laughs> <laughs> Contractor expenses, $12,122.86. And, and for billing inquiries, contact his wife, is what it says. Who's <laughs> also getting paid. You know, the other thing is... I and while it was on one level humorous that this actually happened, getting to the bottom of what was going on back then between Bell Helicopter Textron, the FAA, and DOJ was no laughing matter. And at the forefront of that question was whether the Helen Petty memo was real. And as it turned out, a full two years before Tom Wales was murdered, Danko had been asking that exact same question. So then we got a memo that appeared to be signed by Helen Petty. Is this the memo on my screen? Yeah, I'm going to have to take a look at it here because it's on my phone. Yes. Yep. So tell me what happened. Um, I, you know, I have a vague recollection. I do remember what happened, though. 
What happened was, and it was pretty obvious, that Bell was on a crusade to ground permanently all the 204Bs. We had asked Bert, you know, is this something that Bell wanted to do? Because it sure seems like it. And Bert said, no, there's no such program. There's no such desire. There's nothing like that. We don't have anything against 204Bs. So we received a memo that appeared to be signed by Helen Petty that suggested that contrary to what Jim Burt had to say, that yes, Bell did want to ground all the 204Bs. I mean, the memo's talking about a 204 retirement program. Now, we didn't know who all these people were, but that really wasn't the relevance. The relevance was to us was that Bert had said that there was no desire to ground the 204Bs at all. So what we did is we said, okay, we have to find Helen Petty and we need to see what she has to say about this document. We need a good investigator who can talk to her and find out that she actually signed this document or not. Is this genuine? Because we got it anonymously. Do you remember the name of the investigator? Yeah, his name was, I think it was Kelly. I don't remember his first name. And yep, of course, we're going to pull that thread. So when we ended the last season, we had this big open question. And it turns out you may be the answer. Okay. Because we come to find out that you talked to a Miss Helen Petty back in 1999. I did. You're nodding your head. This is all coming back to you? Well, it's coming back in bits and pieces. The reason is... Retired private investigator Denny Kelly is a gregarious man of many hats. Among them, he's a retired cop and commercial airline pilot with a dozen grandkids to spoil and a memory better than most. And I remember going over to her house because she lived not too far from, at the time, a friend of mine. That friend has since become my wife, and she's no longer my friend, but I mean, you know, what can I say? And what was her sort of demeanor? Describe for us sort of the tone and demeanor. Sort of how did you introduce yourself? I introduced myself the way I always do. I had a card in my hand, And as I handed her my card, I told her that my name is Denny Kelly. I'm a private investigator, and I have been asked to come and talk to you about this uh, email or memo, whatever it was. Was she surprised when you first showed up at her door? Yes. Like what made you think she was surprised? Well, just the look on her face. She had that deer in the headlights look and the hand to the mouth, which is a tell that The person is shocked or surprised or worried or all three about whatever you're showing them or whatever you're saying. And I do remember thinking to myself, this woman is not telling me the truth. Do you remember what the memo was? No, I remember it was on a piece of paper, eight and a half, ten paper printed out, but I do not remember what it was. I want to show you the document and then see if that also helps refresh your recollection about the document and also the exchange. Okay, I see it. Does that look familiar? No, does not, but it wouldn't. I mean, according to the declaration that was filed in court, one of the things you asked her about was, was that her signature on the bottom? Does does that explain that exchange, how that would have gone? 
Well, the first thing she said was that uh, she didn't know anything about it. And I turned around and laid it so she could see the signature. And I said, is that your signature? And I'm paraphrasing, but she said, yes, that's my signature. So, Danny, in the court declaration that I sent you to, it Uh says that when you presented her the memo, she responded that the document appeared to be genuine and the Mm -hmm. signature appeared to be hers. Mm -hmm. And that's consistent with your recollection? Yes. And then it goes on to say that Ms. Petty said several times during the interview that she did not recall anything about the document and emphasized each time she was not saying the document was not genuine, only that she did not remember the details or circumstances of the document. That's correct. And is that consistent with what you remember now? Yes. You know, the thing that I really remember was standing on her porch, not going inside, having her react like she did, showing her saying and her telling me that that was her signature and asking her if it was her signature, how come she didn't know about it or didn't remember anything. And that's about all I remember. It was obvious that while she said she didn't remember the document, uh, knew nothing about it or whatever that she did. Following Denny Kelly's front porch interaction with Miss Helen Petty, attorney Mike Danko would file an urgent appeal to reopen discovery in the insurance case. We then went to the judge and said, we would like to take some depositions. We would like to find out what Ms. Petty has to say under oath, and we'd like to find out what Mr. Burt has to say under oath. But Petty, Burt, and Bell would race the court to file their own motion, claiming the Petty memo was a fraud, and they knew nothing about a 204 retirement program or any payments. And the coup de grace, they denied even knowing one another. And the judge says, well, Ms. Petty is saying that her tenure at Bell did not overlap with Bert's tenure. And they're both sort of now saying that this document is, is not authentic. And it is too late to take discovery. And he says, I'm just, I'm not gonna allow you to take their deposition. So that's kind of, that's as far as that went. Wow. And in the game of what if, it was staggering to think of what would have happened if the authenticity of the memo could have been adjudicated in federal court back then. But I had found one more document buried deep in the Smith's files that suggested another branch of the federal government might have been up to the task. So, David, what'd you find? This is a letter from Eugene Marquette, and it's July of 1999. He's writing to Mike Danko, as well as his partners, Terry O'Reilly and Jim Collins. It says, I just spoke with attorney Jim Culleton. He told me that Ron Garlick's attorney, Dennis Westerberg, has requested the FBI to take a handwriting sample from Miss Helen Petty. Goes on to say, I called Mr. Westerberg, who was not in, left my number, and a request that he called me. Wow. So this document raises a ton of questions for me. Yeah. It'd be curious to know, did they ever get the writing sample? That's something we need to ask Danko. Yeah. I mean, Westerberg, we know is... And ask Danko, we would. And then there were steps taken, it looks like, on that other letter to have somebody check with the FBI to authenticate that memo. Do you know what happened there? Yeah, well, what we did, for purposes of the lawsuit, we were getting very close to trial in our case against Bell. And suddenly we had this document that came our way 
which was inconsistent with what Bert had said and supported our case that what they were trying to do was ground the 204Bs. So that's the only thing we were interested in at the outset is, oh, 204B retirement program, Bert's a liar. So that's kind of, that's as far as that went. Whether someone as set forth in this email got the FBI to take a handwriting sample from uh, Ms. Petty, I don't know. It remains unclear to this day whether the FBI was aware of and or did anything to authenticate the Petty memo 20 years ago or has done anything since. A memo that appeared to allege the payments were made by Bell Helicopter Textron to Tom Wales and other government officials in connection with the 204 retirement program. And that's yet another shame in this saga, as it was left to us to try to ascertain its authenticity some two decades later. On the one hand, the memo had some oddities that were facially suspect. It was handwritten in all caps on a fax cover page. And... In addition to Whale's name being misspelled, there were at least four names on the list for which we could find no connection to the 204B cases. One of them was a very senior DOJ official in Washington, now a federal judge, giving the memo a pelican brief feel. On the other hand, the memo's contents seemed to provide a rational explanation for the irrational behavior of the regulators on the list. You can see why it's critical to understand whether or not this is a forgery. Well, that's interesting because Petty is kind of won't go one way or the other on whether she wrote the document when first approached by the investigator. What's going on in that head of yours? If it was a forgery, who would do that and why? I mean, somebody had access to Bell Stationery, and then why would they do that? I don't, it just doesn't. Only if you were trying to besmirch Bell in some kind of way. But even if you're trying to besmirch, it's not, it's still based on what you know, it's pretty bad news. But I saw it as a fairly innocuous document, except for the fact that it admitted that there was a retirement program. Even today, like I would read this memo. And I, to me, it's like, blah, 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 204 retirement program, blah, 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 blah. I think the other thing that cuts against that theory, the theory that someone forged it, was that the names on this list go across different cases. Yeah, so that is a good way to, who would have knowledge of all of that? Because, I mean, I didn't know who Wales was, and I don't think anybody involved in litigation knew who Wales was. So. And then it, somebody who knew who Wales was, how would they know who Wilkin is? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a very eclectic. Name. And the list of people who would have known that Wales was investigating a 204B case in July of 1999, a year before the public indictment, would be limited to grand jury witnesses, their lawyers and families, Bell executives, and the investigators that brought the case to him in the first place. You know... In my line, and I bet you in your line too, you get anonymous stuff all the time. And unfortunately, when you get anonymous stuff, you almost wish you didn't get it sometimes because it just clouds your thinking. So think about this cast of characters. You've got DOJ, you've got FAA, you've got U.S. Forest Service, you've got an expert witness, 
you've got Jim Burt and Helen Petty. The combination of these people you can't find anywhere. Listen to this one. So Helen Petty was married to a gentleman who was a longtime Bell executive for 27 years by the time he retired. He definitely would have known Jim Burt. Yeah, it's really weird because the other thing is if she is to be believed that her tenure ended before Burt's even started, who would even know who she is? I mean, it would have to be someone who really goes a long way back with Bell, I guess. And then I look at the names and I go, holy crap, you know, I didn't know before who Tom Wales even was. I certainly knew who Wilkin is. And the other weird thing is it wasn't just Bell who hired Wilkin, but it was the government who was using Wilkin. And it was the FAA representative who was in on it. So it's kind of, the whole thing is, it's kind of shocking. And there are many unanswered questions in the work that I did. And after all this time, there were still a lot of unanswered questions and ours too. I was starting to conclude we may never be able to establish if the memo itself was a forgery. But the mere fact that it was a real document that was floating around the federal courthouse, Bell, and possibly the FBI in 1999, well, that was significant in and of itself to the question most on our mind. You know, and the relevance for us is, if not obvious to you, you know, Wales got killed right around the time all of this was coming to light. And Wales had made a decision to stop these cases, at least in the Seattle area. He had shut them down. And a lot of people were affected by that decision. And we're trying to get to the bottom of... Motive. Motive. So what's remarkable, again, to put it in context, is all this money is about to stop. And then somebody walks the up... spigot's stopping. ...walks up and shoots whales. And he's on the list. Amidst all this 20-year-old speculation about cases and memos and money... I couldn't help think about Tom's friends and what they had been saying to us about the person he was. Here's Barat Sham again. When Tom dismissed those cases in the summer before he was killed, he knew at that point that something was wrong. He knew because one of the expert witnesses for the FAA had been outed. Once he knew about it, did he become a threat to that group of people. Essentially kicking a hornet's nest. Yeah, I mean, that's the open question that you folks had towards the end of the podcast, you know. So if there was some hanky-panky here where Bell Helicopter was actually bribing people or enriching people, I have no doubt in my mind that if he got wind of that, he would have been all over and trying to expose it. He would not have shirked back. And if Barat was right about his friend's true character... Maybe our focus on money as a possible motive for murder was right, too. But the focus on who was getting it was flawed. What was interesting, this effort to ground these helicopters manifested itself in several pieces of litigation around the country. And in that litigation, there were a lot of people making money in these cases through a variety of different means. 
And Tom, by virtue of basically pushing back, is bringing all that the gravy train to, an, to a halt. Yeah, there's definitely some tension around this piece of evidence. Yeah, yeah. But for an investigation like this, you could go back and look at every single financial transaction of everybody who was involved in that case. And if you can find the $100,000 that make no sense, that pops into a bank and $5,000 dribbles or whatever it is, they should go through that and, and find out if there was someone there. It could be someone. The pilot seems to be sort of like a B-movie suspect. It's like, okay, he walks suspicious, he talks suspicious, and now clearly he did it, which is apparently how most law enforcement is. So it's entirely possible that it is the obvious suspect, but you have to eliminate this other. You've advanced a very credible storyline where Tom uncovers something. He doesn't know what he's uncovered, and the other person, someone, one of his colleagues, basically is terrified and, and takes action, right? And so that should be pursued. So it's possible that's the case. And at the end of the day, after now two years of looking into this case with no subpoena power, that's all we really had, possibilities. You know, when season one of Serial ended, we all wanted Sarah Koenig to tell us who killed Heyman Lee. And we've heard that desire expressed here too. But in the face of 20-year-old recollections and obfuscations, all that really remains is this tapestry of possibilities that can be debated amongst friends. Possibilities that lead to only one undeniable conclusion. Absent a confession, it is unlikely anyone will ever be prosecuted for Tom Whale's murder. And that's a shame. Too much time has passed, and too much reasonable doubt has been sown by the government's own investigation. But that doesn't mean there's nothing left for the FBI to do. Again, I want to exhort them to close the possibility that Tom was corrupt by looking at everything and coming back and saying, like, we have looked at it, looked at it inside out, and we know that he wasn't corrupt. Because I think that's, that's all he has left, right? I mean, pretty soon in the sands of time, you know, his good name is all that he's got left. And so it's important that that is cleared. And if Tom Wales was who we thought he was, or more accurately, who we wanted to believe he was, on that point, we could all agree. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Hey, Somebody Somewhere listeners. Before you leave us, please stay tuned for a sneak peek at our upcoming Season 2, immediately following these credits. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Every week, they're bringing their A-game, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake, and original score and voiceover work is provided by Hallie Payne. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening.
two people were killed and three wounded Tuesday night in a shooting near a homeless encampment known as the jungle. This area was swarming with ATF agents, homicide detectives, and squad three team members. brothers were arrested. 17, 16, and the youngest, just 13 years old. This is some sketch shit. They're colors, dude. We have to be careful not to put her in any more danger. Were you guys working here when the murders in the jungle happened? Somebody got to her and said, you can't talk to these reporters. I need a drink. You're such a baby. Man up. Coming in June 2019, season two of Somebody Somewhere, The Jungle Murders. I'm your host, David Payne. I think it's very important that we not jump to unfounded conclusions in this tragic situation. 